Welcome to Smart Humans with Slava Rubin, presented by Vincent. In this alt-investing podcast, Slava talks to amazing minds about their investment journey and finds out what it takes to make it in the markets. And now, here's your host and smart human, Slava Rubin. Welcome to another episode of Smart Humans. I'm really excited for today's guest. Uh, it's one of those alternative assets that I'm always interested in learning more about, and we have one of the world's experts. So Arta Milinchek, welcome to the show. Thank you, Slava. Excited to be here. So you're the CEO and founder of Farm Together, and we're going to jump into what it means to invest into farmland. I mean, some people do this all the time, and most people don't even know that it's an opportunity. So I'm excited to have that discussion. But like, we always like to start with all of our guests. How did you even get involved in the beginning with alternative investments? Where did it start with you? Uh, so yeah, absolutely. I think it started pretty early. I was born and raised in uh, Moscow, Russia, but I moved to Canada, North America in 2007. And from 2008, 2010, and then uh, 2012 to 2016, I was working um, for uh, a Canadian pension fund and I worked for a private equity fund and I worked for a family office. And in all of those roles, I had a lot of exposure to alternative investments. And those were more traditional alternative investments at the time, not like NFTs and you know shoes like we have today. Uh, it was real estate, timber, um, you know, uh, junior mining. Um, so I had, you know, Canadians are very innovative in investments. A lot of people don't know that, but actually they're quite innovative there. And so I had an opportunity to learn from some of the best and have a very diverse and global view of alternative investments. Great. And then uh, previous to Farm Together, you were already involved with, let's call it food, the food system and produce, etc. Can you give a little bit more color about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I had the good fortune to be the first employee at a company called Full Harvest. It's now a Series B uh, startup that was a B2B marketplace connecting farms, uh, mostly uh, fruits and vegetables, directly with uh, buyers. And they were focused on what's called number two or imperfect produce, which is everything that doesn't look, you know, picture perfect that you see on your shelves. And what blew my mind is that that kind of produce was actually oftentimes 25, 50% or even more of the farm's product that before full harvest would have typically gone to waste. So I had a really, uh, you know, good opportunity to work alongside the founder for almost a year, um, really learning the ins and outs of California's market where a lot of the uh, fruits and vegetables are grown. Um, and then just the B2B aspect of uh, farming, uh, buying operations. So it was a really good hands-on experience as well. So you leverage that uh, experience to then start uh, Farm Together, which is even more into the farming and produce. Why stay in that space? Like, what is it about that space that gravitated you towards it? Oh man, that's a, you know, that's a great question. Um, and definitely, I would say like farming is not for the weak of mind or heart, but it seems to grasp it. You never let go. Um, look, I would say from a more pragmatic standpoint, it was just, I think, a, a phenomenal opportunity. Um, I don't want to kind of dive too much, but it's a huge market, huge asset class. And so for someone coming from finance, an opportunity to define an asset class comes, you know, once in a lifetime. And then more, more kind of emotionally, I just really like the people I met. I like the farmers I met. I like the people in operations. It was just something very, very true. In a world of crises, asset prices and bubbles, wars, pandemics, it's nice to be in a career in an industry that has been around for thousands of years and is going to be around for thousands of years. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. You mentioned uh, you were born in Russia. Is that correct? Correct. And then what year did you come to North America? Uh, 2007. So in 2007. So how does an immigrant from Russia get into U.S. farming? Like, how does that uh, happen? I guess I'm asking you the same question in a different way. Absolutely. Uh, so I think it's, uh, you know, honestly, it's just part of the American story in general, where people from all over the world come here to uh, achieve uh, you know, make the best of themselves and the opportunity in, you know, United States is ginormous. I mean, whether it's Ham, uh, Hamilton or Elon Musk or whoever, um, it's just, it's honestly a very classic story. Um, for me, I think it's just part of it was also um, kind of more visceral childhood memories. And Slava, you know, we're talking about before we started this podcast, you've been from Belarus. We probably have the same backgrounds of working on little plots of land during the summer, like my grandparents, and because there was no no food in Soviet Union. So you had to actually, you know, the kids go and with parents, grandparents, work those little patches of land. And I think always, for me, it was a fond memory and something that is, you know, unchangeable in a world of so many different changes it's something that you can rely on and um, you know u.s specifically i think it's because u.s is near canada and again u.s has very innovative financial markets very innovative population it's just it's yeah it's land of opportunities as tried as it may sound but it, it is absolutely that's great so obviously you're an expert at all things uh farmland um but from a personal portfolio perspective how are you structuring your own net worth uh, beyond, you know, the public markets or cash? Are you investing into real estate, into venture, pre-IPO, collectibles, crypto, you know, Bitcoin, NFTs, sports cards, sneakers, any of this? So right now, most of my time is focused on farm together. And myself and the exec team, you know, as much as possible, we try to actually signal with our personal income as well, where we, um, our principals invest into every farmland deal. So quite a bit of my investments is in farmland. Um, I do have uh, a little bit in just traditional stocks, uh, a little bit in, in Bitcoin. And I have invested in kind of, I think, two, three startups that were coming through my network, but honestly, it was more just to support, you know, people I know. Um, so I'm not that active in sort of the more alternative space. Honestly, all my time goes to farm together. And that's where my personal capital, reputation, time, <laughs> etc., is, is tied up. Yeah. And this show is all about getting exposure and knowledge about diversifying across alternatives. So it's good for the listeners and it's good for you as well. So we all, uh, we all need to continue to evolve there. It's interesting that you mentioned you do have a little bit in Bitcoin. When you were thinking about, you know, I'm focused on Farm Together, I'm focused on doing my own stuff. And for some reason, that was able to break through and put in some money into Bitcoin. Why Bitcoin? Why not Ethereum? Why crypto? Why not a sports card? Why not an NFT? So I, I just have some, uh, I do have some Ethereum as well, and uh, I don't know if it'll be interesting to, to you guys, but I'll tell you a quick story how I met the founder of Ethereum, Vitalik Buterin. So this was in Toronto back in 20, I want to say 13, 14, when he didn't even start Ethereum yet. And I went to this Bitcoin meetup because I had this other idea, uh, and I saw this weird kid, and I was trying to sell him to join me too. <laughs> help with this like micropayments uh, idea I had. And he was like, no, I'm working on this other thing. 
And thanks for offering. And then I stayed and I listened to him. And then I was like, this kid is either crazy or genius. And I still have an email I sent some of my friends where I was like, I met this kid. He's either crazy or genius. And they're like, he's crazy. Uh, and so I bring, bring up this email every year to them to show that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, both with Bitcoin and Ethereum, I invested. And again, I, I haven't made a lot of money, but a little bit in like 2013 and then Ethereum, maybe like 2016. And just kept, kept hodling it. <laughs> Um, so hodling, meaning yeah. holding on for the phone. Yeah, just, just holding, just holding it, yes. I mean, it's a great example that you put in a little bit, probably not that much of your net worth, but it's, you know, had good returns. And it just shows that, you know, if people are willing to even just experiment a little bit with these different asset classes, you can learn a lot uh, and the returns could be good as well. Yeah, and, you know, it's a good point. In, in um, I want to say, at Ontario teachers where I used to work, we had a saying, attention goes where the money goes. And so... If you put it in a little bit, right, it's essentially now you have this material stake and then you start learning more about it. Then you go, okay, this was stupid. Well, like, no, this is actually really interesting. I should add more. So, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's fun as well. I think, you know, what is for me really cool to see in an alt, in alternatives, it's, it, there's a lot of energy here, right? And change, returns even happen where there's energy, attention. And alt is a fun space, right? It's a, it's a fun space to, to hang out. Absolutely. So before we talk about your expertise and all things investing into farmland, how about we set the, the table as to what the market looks like today? I mean, how would you give perspective on the macro economy, the geopolitical situation, where we're at on, you know, multiple compression, inflation, you know, tapering? Uh, you know, I, I don't want to lead the witness too much, but I would love to just have Artem, you just say, you know, here's my point of view on today's market or, you know, this year's market or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I had the opportunity to be in the markets in front of my Bloomberg screen during 2008 and all the screens flashing red and everyone kind of yelling, it's the end of the world. So I have a bit of perspective now. Um, but this time is definitely quite something. We had first a global pandemic that shut everything down in a way almost unprecedented, to be honest, like even probably during, maybe during the Black Plague or the influenza, but um, that was very quick and very sudden. Now we have a specter of World War Three. We have inflation highest in many decades. So there, this is like each one of this independently would be the defining factor of the year. And now we have all of them because the pandemic is still happening, right? Like China hasn't gone through it. Um, the inflation, it could be coming down. It could be actually starting to hit double digits. The the war could break out and get even more deadly. Like these are all real, real significant risks. So we are in unprecedented times, or at least unprecedented times in recent memory. And I just really want to acknowledge that that's very true. And there's second, third order effects that are happening. We did have definitely multiple compression. We've seen it in tech stocks. It's actually been very interesting you're talking a bit about crypto to see crypto kind of diverse, um, divorce itself from tech, where before it was kind of all moving in tandem. Now tech is down like 50, 70% some stocks. And you know, crypto is actually Bitcoin at 40K or something doing quite well. Um, so you know, there's definitely, I think, risks of recession, uh, risks of new variants. Um, yeah, it's um, a very, very chaotic time where it's just, it's hard. It's not, um, I would say that, yeah, that's probably the 
my take on the markets this year. And um, a lot needs to go right um, for call it like a soft landing. Um, another big issue is just more human from a humanitarian perspective, but sky high food and fuel prices are hitting people in emerging markets. And we're seeing that starting to take a lot of effect. And then, you know, hunger leads to wars, leads to revolutions. Um, Farm Together's mission is to ensure peace and plenty by investing in sustainable agri-revolution because uh, a lot of the, throughout history, um, all this unrest happens because you have nothing to eat. You have no water. You know, we had the Ethiopia-Egypt crisis, if people remember that, between around the water dam. So no, there's a lot of very real risks involved, and I don't think we're looking at them with open eyes right now. So that's a, uh, a great transition into talking about, you know, investing into farmland and such. What does that even mean? So for people that are listening, they're not familiar. So farmland, I guess that's where, you know, the crops are grown that I get at the grocery store, right? So what does that even mean to invest into farmland? Yeah, absolutely. Just yet to set kind of the table a little bit. Let's talk only about farmland in United States, which according to our estimates, USDA is about a $3 trillion market. And that's the value of land itself, as well as kind of some of the buildings uh, and improvements. So it doesn't include things like processing facilities, packaging facilities, typically. And the global farmland market, we estimate, is about 10 trillion. So United States plus Canada is probably around 30, 40% of the market. What it means to invest in farmland? It means to invest in in land that um, either produces crops or is used for ranching and grazing. So roughly 1.82 trillion in U.S. is cropland, plus minus, and the rest is pasture land. So within farmland, when what it means to invest in that is that you buy and own land, and that land has two sources of return to you. One is hopefully price appreciation, and the second one is current income that is derived either from renting out the land to a farmer or having some sort of an operating farming business on top of it where you get maybe percentage of revenue or percentage of profit or something in between. Got it. So um, the farmland, you could almost think about it as like owning like the real estate, like a house. Um, But then there's also almost like rental income that's coming in by actually the farmer creating produce that's creating income and you're getting a piece of that. Is that right? That's right, Slava. And um, typically how we talk about this market is that it's it's definitely, it's a unique asset class. So it has components of real estate, like the ones you described. It has some components of timber. And timber, what's interesting is that once you plant the tree, biologically just increases in value every year. And same with, with farmland, especially in what's called permanent crops. So your tree nuts, your fruits, where you plant trees, and once they grow, they just yield every year um, some fruits. Uh, some of it is almost like a inflation protection bond where the nature of farmland is quite inflation resistant and so people view it as sort of this bond plus product we've heard a lot from our clients that's how they view some components of farmland um but yeah i think real estate is a great lens a few people have experience with real estate they can use that experience to analyze farmland as well so if we're starting at a beginner level um how do i think about investing into real estate? Like what are the choices I need to make? Am I picking like the actual farm? Am I picking baskets or a fund? Do I get to pick like, you know, orange groves versus almond farms? 
if my favorite you know fruit is strawberries, can I invest in a strawberry farm? How, how do where do I start? Am I investing in Texas versus California or Florida or how does it work? Yeah, great question. Um, short answer is all of the above. Um, so uh, right now we offer a variety of farms that span different geographies, different crops, and even different financial structures. Um, you can either invest into individual farms we put on the platform, and right now we're looking to expand the number of farms that we bring to the platform so that you have more choice. But you can also invest in just a fund that is looking to do um, a more diversified strategy. So instead of you know getting an email where it says, this farm is going live, this farm is going live, you can invest into a fund and just sit back and over the course of you know, one, two years, we target this fund to invest into a diversified portfolio of crops and geographies. And you can do both as well, right? You can invest into the fund and then invest um, uh, into individual uh, offerings. So what's the, do I need to be an accredited investor or is this for anybody? So right now, yes, you need to be an accredited investor with me, which means you need to have certain level of income or certain level of net worth. Got it. And then, okay, so assuming I'm an accredited investor, um, what's the minimum I can invest? Right now, most deals are $15,000. Got it. So let's use that $15,000 bogey. So, okay, let's, most people don't get to have you as their personal advisor, but I do um, uh, since you're on my podcast. So I have $15,000 um, and I'm like, okay, I'm not sure what I want to invest into. What are kind of like the questions that your platform or really any of these platforms are helping to answer, uh, mostly digitally? I don't think they're usually talking to a person. But what are the questions? Okay, what's the amount? Okay, 15. Um, let's say I want to pick a specific farm. So like, what are the choices I get to make? Yeah, and by the way, we do have a great client team and you're always welcome to call them as well. Uh, so we, we love talking to our investors. So for the listeners, please don't hesitate. We love talking to you and uh, always learning something from you as well. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the main factors you would consider when looking at an offering, uh, you'll take a look at what is the target net internal rate of return or IRR? Um, what is the expected cash yield uh, or cash pay payout that you can receive as an investor every year? Um, what is the target hold period for how many years uh, do we expect to hold this farm? And you know, keep in mind that uh, farmland is a long-term investment. So most of our deals are in the call it nine to 11 year hold period um, because um, it's, yeah, farmland is not, you know, NFT is crypto. <laughs> you you got to hold it long-term. Uh, and then you, once you dive into the page, we have a very user-friendly section called risks that outlines the key risk factors for this farm and also shows you where we place this farm in our uh, risk return um, kind of framework where you can expect farms that have lower return to have lower risk, farms that have higher returns to have higher risk because that's how investing works. Um, you can also join a webinar to listen to uh, you know, more in-depth overview of the farm and ask questions to the investment team. Uh, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, really with the farms, it's what is the price I'm buying it at, right? Is it at market, above, below market? What are the key assumptions around future crop prices, future costs, future sale price? What are some of the you know, risks related to geography? If it's California, you know, what is always a question? So we spend 
a lot of time talking about water. Um, if it's, for example, uh, Midwest, a lot of farms that actually have too much water, and so you need tiling and drainage for farms to get the water from the farm. Um, who is the farmer that we're working with, right? Who are the operators? Um, what, so it's uh, it's really, you know, at the end of the day, farmland investing is hard but simple. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that... Um, it's really how much stuff is this farm going to grow and for how much will I sell that stuff? <laughs> so it's, it's not, it's not rocket science. So when you say like a conservative investment with lower risk, what kind of returns should I expect on one of the more conservative investments? That's lower. Uh, risk? Yeah. Uh, six, 7%. And the six, 7%, that's like my annual uh, return or is that my cash payout? How should I think about that? The cash payouts on those net of all fees are typically kind of in the call it two to three, sometimes a little higher, maybe four percent range, and then the rest is from price appreciation. So historically, farmland in U.S. in the last fifty years or so uh, has done about five six percent land price appreciation. The ENCRI farmland index, which is kind of the more formalized institutional farmland index from ninety two to two thousand twenty one has been about 10, 10.5% total return. Sorry, how do you um, spell that index? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, uh, N as in Nancy, C as in Charlie, R as in Romeo, E as in Echo, I as in India, F as in Foxtrot, so and Creef. They have right. a lot of different indexes here for real estate. Yeah. And that's kind of like the market standard, the benchmark of tracking. I, I would farmland. say yes. I would say yes. Um, farmland market overall is still a fairly young asset class, and so you don't have that much um, formal, kind of more formalized investment groups there in general. Got it. So it seems like a lot of opportunity. So Encrief is uh, is tracking the land appreciation, not the crop yield. Is that right? It tracks both. Oh, it does. Okay. And what's the proportionality typically between the land appreciation versus the crop yield? Is there like a general heuristic? Is it 50-50, 90-10? I would say generally, roughly, overall, it's like 50-50. But I would say it's leaning recently um, more towards price appreciation. Got it. Just given where interest rates have been. I think now that interest rates are kind of rising to something more neutral, we might see uh, that swing coming back more towards cash yield again. Got it. Got it. And then what's a more, you said that a conservative position is like six to 7% annual return. Uh, what's like a more average position? Average would be right now closer to 8%, um, eight, 9%. And what gets a little bit more aggressive, but not crazy? 10, 11%. Got it. And when, when you're in a 10 or 11%, uh, return opportunity, obviously you've raised your risks. Mm-hmm. And what are those risks that you kind of are willing to take on? Can you give some of those examples of, you know what, 11% seems like it's good and I'm willing to take on these three additional risks, whatever mm-hmm. they are. Can you give some of the examples? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, one, um, it's operational risk. So the six, seven percent is typically buying like a cornfield in Illinois and renting it out. 11% is... Um, taking on development of, let's say, an almond orchard or an apple orchard, where you also have a direct operated model, where you have um, professional farming families, companies, operators that will farm uh, your orchard according to certain criteria. Um, But the 
the farm itself carries all the cash, all the operating risk. You also um, sometimes, not always, have uh, purchase and development debt on it, which allows you to increase your returns a little bit. Um, and then you also are in, again, more kind of the permanent crop commodities, so apples, nuts, things like that, where there's more volatility, but also historically higher returns. So when you look at raw crops, like the corn, soybean field, historical returns, um, they're very stable and around, you know, 5 to 6 7% overall. Sorry, just to interrupt. So you're using these terms, I think, that we're taking for granted. So what's a raw crop versus... Yeah, let me... uh, So raw crops is, you know, what you plant in rows and also called annual crops. So every year. Um, So it's like corn, typically soybeans, things like that. Um, And that's just, you know, sometimes we we call it uh, uh, just dirt, right? It's you go in this field and there's dirt and then you plant it, you take it out. uh, That's it. Um, Orchards, you know, take much more attention you plant them they're there for decades many decades sometimes um and those are called permanent crops because that's there permanently and yeah th- those are two big segments in the market uh raw crops and raw permanent. typically have lower returns yes and have less risk yes got it got it and then in the world of raw is there a spectrum of higher risk or lower risk in raw or are they all pretty the same oh yeah no no there is yeah absolutely so again you can do a direct operated model you can be farming more organically or more specialty grains some some raw crop farms can be uh, irrigated so now you're taking a little bit of additional risk on the equipment there um but generally uh, you know, when we think about risk if I can use for just a second here risk is another way to say uncertainty and uh, when you are in the corn soybean business, I mean, these are ginormous markets, right? Those products go into dozens, I mean, dozens, hundreds of different applications. There is government support for it. There's very clear markets there. So it's, it's, a, it's a much more kind of predictable and developed market. When you're talking about a variety of apple um, almonds, right? Those are much smaller markets. They're more volatile. For example, in California, we're still having major issues with getting that almond harvest out because of container shortages, because of supply uh, issues uh, and logistics issues. Um, and so you just have less of that in uh, in um, uh, row crops. And it's also more of a rental model you have in row crops where you just rent it out to a farmer. Farmer typically pays up front. You can rent it out every year. There's a lot of farmers looking to rent versus kind of a much more uh, ownership mentality with permanent crops where... Um, you know, if a farmer is not doing well, you have to change them. Uh, they might have not been taking good care of the trees, so you need more oversight. So it's just more involvement with the farm. Got it. So in orchards, or what you're calling permanent crops, is there again a spectrum of the safer, uh, you know, in, uh, ingredients versus the less safe? For example, where does oranges sit compared to almonds? Sit compared to cherries? Compared to potatoes or strawberries i just made those up yeah yeah. um yeah absolutely so let's see i would say that the way we've seen it historically is that on the kind of high risk high return spectrum are um apples and cherries Uh, there's a lot of different varieties this um with cherries especially it's kind of you sometimes have like this week to harvest and sell you know you notice cherries are not available to you throughout the year um there's also just a lot of varieties in apples some of the risk is in when you're also operating in smaller markets, um, for example, like dates. 
um, where it's just a smaller market. And smaller, again, means more volatility, more uncertainty. Um, some risk comes to, for example, walnuts. So walnuts, uh, you know, China this year has been quite aggressive in supplying and so uh, prices have come down. Whereas almonds, while also quite volatile and right now uh, you know, the prices are recovering, but California is almost 70-80% of global almond production. And so you have this sort of economies of scale and being the dominant leader in the market of uh, almonds. And so there's you know a bit of a um, less risk there and just by the nature again of the size of the markets. Um, oranges... Um, I'd have to look back. Um, can't really reply right now where they fall overall. And then look, part of it is also things like just water. Again, in California, we aim to secure properties with good water rights. But, you know, talking about risk, you could go and uh, try to invest into an area that has more sketchy, spotty water rights where, um, you know, that land will be cheaper, but you could either lose everything or make a lot of money, depending how the water goes. So you do have like those risky strategies in farmland as well. But overall, farmland is a kind of low risk, low return, sort of safe, stable, boring uh, part of your portfolio. So we're trying to manage to the strength of farmland, not make farmland again a crypto play or something or a textile play. And how do you think about diversifying a farmland portfolio if we're not investing into a fund that does it for us? Should we invest in three pieces, five pieces, 10 pieces, 20? How do you think about that? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's a great question. And um, it really, part of it is also, what does your portfolio look like? Typically, most people don't have farmland in their portfolio. And so adding even one farm um, will likely improve the overall, you know, sharp ratio, risk return, diversification of your portfolio, because farmland is generally uncorrelated to most other asset classes. Uh, historically. Uh, but a rule of thumb and kind of what I would think through is, I would say, yeah, it's like between five to 10 properties. It starts getting you in different crops and geographies, starts getting you to something kind of more diversified. And what are the geography choices? Like, how do you think about geographies in the US? Uh, yeah. So California, obviously, then I would say Washington and Oregon for kind of permanent crops, Arizona. And then um, for Corn and soybeans, uh, it would be uh, Illinois, it would be Nebraska, um, kind of Midwest, uh, the, you know, Mississippi Delta, places like that. Yeah. And then uh, you mentioned um, there's some similar properties to real estate. How would you compare and contrast you know, farmland investing to real estate? Should I think that, well, if I'm already doing real estate, why do I need farmland? Or is there very clear differences that you want to highlight? Yeah, definitely a lot of differences. Um, first of all, just the correlation nature. So farmland is uncorrelated or historically has been uncorrelated in using the NCRIF index to most other asset classes. Highest correlation has been to real estate, but it's only at like 0.4 or so historically. So it's still fairly uh, low in my view. The Some other differences are one, farmland as land actually does not depreciate it can lose value, just to be clear, but IRS even says right in the documents that you cannot depreciate land. And so with buildings, yes, you know, houses, real estate typically grows in value, but the buildings themselves, they depreciate. Um, with uh, a lot of land, um, you typically have fairly long life, although like almond orchards, you need to uh, replant. So I would say it's the overall um, 
improvement in the value of land as time goes by, especially if you're farming it sustainably, which is part of our focus as well. Um, there's also, um, you have to consult your own tax attorneys, as we have to say, but there are tax benefits uh, from investing in development farmland where some of those may be a uh, flow through to your taxes on your K-1 where you get to offset uh, the development costs of land uh, against some of your other passive income. So again, no tax, not tax advice, but there are potential tax benefits. Um, if you're an ESG investor, someone who is focused on impact investing, um, our farms right now are what's called um, leading harvest certified. So we're focusing on making our um, land investments more and more sustainable. Uh, and then you, you, I think you um, you do have a fairly good um, historical inflation protection uh, factor. So historically, farmland has done quite well in periods of inflation, and that's because a lot of farmland products actually are components of the CPI. Can you expand on that uh, just a second? Because a lot of people say, oh, and there's going to be inflation, farmland might be a good investment. Can you just expand on why people think that and how that works? Yeah, so... Um, Farmland products compose um, a lot of the what's called feed, fuel, fiber, and food. Um, so it's things that really are kind of the staple consumption um, that you have to buy no matter what. And so when there's inflation, you still have to be buying those products. And historically, farmland has performed very well in periods of high inflation and outperformed S&P 500. Um, you know, I have to look at specific numbers, but it's done quite well. And in some periods, has even outperformed gold. More, more generically, you know, when you think about what do you want to, how do you protect your capital in periods of high inflation? Well, you want to own real assets, assets that cannot be just manufactured out of thin air. And farmland is not only not increasing in supply, but it's actually decreasing in supply. So we're losing millions of acres in U.S. every year to urbanization, to climate change, other factors. Um, so it's kind of the overall, um, I guess, trend of protecting your uh, capital by investing in real assets. Interesting. And then um, similar but different to inflation, how does what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine, the impact on crops and all of the discussion about wheat, et cetera, how is that going to affect the returns or even the produce availability in the U.S. You know, it's a, it's a good question because the New York reaction is that well, you know, wheat prices are really high right now, um, commodity prices are going up, farmers are going to benefit. But the issue is that also a lot of input prices are going up, uh, everything from fuel to fertilizer to steel. So honestly, I don't know. Uh, I think it might balance itself out, but we're in a very volatile environment, and so I'm hesitant to make any predictions right now on how it's going to shake out. And then totally uh, different question, but I hear that Bill Gates is a huge investor into farmland. Can you give me your perspective on that? And like, why is that? Yeah. So I think there was an article saying Bill Gates own is, is the largest owner of farmland in the United States and owns more than 200,000 acres, I believe. So that is, has been an open secret in farmland community for many years. Uh, for some reason that came out a couple like a year ago and now Everyone does know it. I think it's just um, his overall foundation making uh, what I think are savvy long-term choices where farmland 
we strongly believe is a good long-term investment. So they've just been investing in that. You know, it's it's something that you can hold for many, many years, I believe. And so for them, when I think they think in decades, generations, it just makes a lot of sense. And look, it is a lot for kind of when it sounds like Bill Gates' largest farm owner, when we think, oh my God. But he owns more than 200,000 acres. Slava, there is 900 million acres of farmland in the United States. Most of it, by the way, according to SDA, is owned by families. So what Bill Gates owns is a rounding error in the land. And that is also, I think, probably a rounding error for his total foundation. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, I think, my main points. That's awesome. So um, if I wanted to, I guess I could myself go find a farm, try to negotiate something, try to go invest into that farm or with that farmer, et cetera, et cetera. You obviously are doing all that work for me and identifying those opportunities. Can you just give a little bit more color? Like, how are you sourcing those farms? How are you diligencing them? What um, happens for them to be approved onto the site? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a lot of work to find, to analyze farms. Um, and right now we're doing, we source farms through two main channels. It's what I would call broadly relationships. And it's our brand and our network. And that goes into finding off-market opportunities. And then there is the public market opportunities that uh, we find using public websites, brokerage networks, and then all of that we analyze with the help of our proprietary AI engine we call Terra that helps us to quickly analyze farms uh, because there's, unlike a lot of other asset classes, there's no Bloomberg, no Zillow for farmland. A lot of information is scattered and fragmented. So in order to sift through a lot of opportunities and try to bring you only the best ones, we have to go, go through a lot. And so tech helps us there. Um, and then, yeah, once we identify the right farms, we'll enter into purchase agreement, put it on a platform, syndicate capital if needed, secure debt, work with title companies, do extensive due diligence, then close and manage it on your behalf. So uh, it's a lot of work. Honestly, I think, um, I mean, you're welcome to do it yourself, but I wouldn't recommend unless you like really know what you're doing. Um, there's a lot of, um, a lot of pitfalls. And, um, you know, I think we have a great team. But I also want to say, like, we stay humble and we're still learning every day. And it's when you go through the title on land, um, you in a way learning the history of the country. Like, we were looking at some title where there was things from 120 years ago, 19th century, where, th like, the country is allowed to build this on your land. And then you have to go to, like, the county and say, uh, I just want to make sure that this thing from, like, 120 years ago, you're not going to use it to build, I don't know, <laughs> a railway here. Uh, that's how far it goes back. So it's fascinating to look through that, um, but it's a lot of work. Cool. And you obviously know um, so much about your topic. You're such an expert, and, you know, the, the listeners... I'm still, Slava, you, you're being too kind. I have a great team. I'm still learning, honestly. It's still every day is learning experience, which is yeah, staying humble. And that leads to the question, which is, what are you listening to? What are you watching? What are you reading? Uh, and can you give us real examples that, you know, our listeners can try to replicate some of that? Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. Typically, I read uh, just Bloomberg News and then some newsletters. Um, I honestly just read a lot of industry news and kind of general news about what's happening. Where, where can we read some of that industry news? We have Farm Daily. It's a letter by, by the Illinois University. And then Bloomberg... Um, the Fortune newsletter, there is a uh, Daily Brew, 
liquidity. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I think those are kind of uh, the main ones. We have a internal in the company kind of a Slack channel where people post a lot of different news coming from all kinds of different sources. And then on a kind of a more lighter note, when I'm going to work, I listen to the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia podcast on Spotify. And what was like one of those uh, industry news sites or, or newsletters that you like? It's called Farm Doc Daily, and it's by um, the Illinois University, I believe. And then there's some more from different um, industry associations on almonds, apples, things like that. Great. Reading about apples. I love it. So my last question, which I ask everybody, which is what would you recommend to invest into today that uh, three years from now, when we have you back on the show, I get to put you on the spot and see Artem, this is what you said. And look, it was great or it was a bad investment. And you're not allowed to say just invest into farmland just to say it. You have to be very specific uh, what you would invest into today uh, that we get to check three years from now. Oh, man. Uh, great question. Yes, I'm not, I'm not going to talk shop. I'm just going to think repeat what Warren Buffett says that bet on US. I think uh, it, it's still going to be around in three years. But what investment would you make? What can we actually put money into? What would you put money into? And I'm not allowed to say farmland. <laughs> you can say farmland, but don't say generically farmland. Tell me the specific farm or the specific type of crop or the specific region or... You know, if you want to say apples in Washington, that's fine. Uh, just be more specific. Yeah. So look, it's uh, kind of asking me to choose, you know, which of my babies is my favorite. But, um, I, you know, I would say that, let's say almonds, almonds in California. There's a lot of misconceptions around water. A lot of, uh, I think, almonds the last couple of years have been quite beat up. But overall, as we work through the supply and logistic issues, I think the prices will recover. And so the right farms with right water will, uh, will do well, is my view. All right. So that's, that's what we're saying. Almonds in California. Three years from now, we're going to have you back. We're going to review that one. Well, Artem, thank you for your time. This has been so much fun. I've learned so much from hearing your story about meeting Vitalik to learning about the Netcrief you know, index, the fact that you know, farms are only 0.4% correlated to real estate and they don't go down in value, which is amazing. And most importantly, I learned about permanent crops such as like apples and cherries and dates, that they're complicated. And then in the process, you get a better return. Uh, and finally, we heard that we're uh, betting on almonds in California. So I'm excited for that. Thank you for your time and really great having you on the show. Thank you, Slava. Smart Humans with Slava Rubin is a podcast brought to you by the team at Vincent. Any data, text, or other content in this podcast is provided as general market information and not as investment advice. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future results. For more information on alternative investing, check out Vincent at www.withvincent.com.